let me uh, begin my time with you this morning to, uh, by saying thank you. Thank you for such a rich, uh, sweet time in the house of the Lord. It's been a sweet weekend for me personally, um, an opportunity to have fellowship with people I love and without whom uh, the world would not have much charm, to be honest. Take the people of God out of this world and it's not much of a place to live, is it? But uh, even as rough as the world is, as hard as things are getting, uh, we have this rich privilege still of walking through the hard places with the dear saints of the Lord. And um, frankly, it's the only way to live. It's just the only way to live. This is not starting out well. (laughs) Let's see if I can pull it together here. Um, Thank you for your uh, welcome to me and to our son Aiden. Aiden was five when we came and did this meeting a few years ago. It was the first time I'd ever brought him along without his mother to take care of him in church. You know, here I am up here, and he was out there somewhere, and uh, now double that age, and sweet that he um, has friendship and fellowship with so many cousins and other young people here. And then uh, Logan, who's traveling with us, thankful for your welcome to him and kind of his first experience of of something quite like this. So uh, thank you for opening the door so warmly to him as well. I'm thankful for the special things you have here. When I pray, uh, I I try to pray for a number of churches uh, during the course of a month. And and when I come across my prayers for the church at Collierville, it's always a sweet moment. You know, my heart just is happy at the thought. It's a little bit like Paul in Philippians 1 when he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. It's my privilege to do that, and especially, um, I know this is, we didn't set this up, Timothy said some really nice things about me, but I, uh, I really was intending to say some really nice things about him, but uh, it's, uh, it feels a little funny, I guess, when preachers do that, but uh, I, I, I so admire uh, my brother in the Lord and the way that uh, God has his hand on him. I grew up around preachers. My dad is a preacher. I was around preachers all my life. And as one brother said, I've lived around preachers enough to know to be afraid of them. They're a pretty scary, pretty scary lot if you get right down to it. But um, I see in Timothy um, an unusual presence of the Spirit of the Lord and a desire to honor Christ with all of his life and in his family. The consistency is there. And the Word of God is just central with our brother. And I, I'm very thankful, and I know that you... I mean, you must thank the Lord very, very regularly for the man that he has called to shepherd you here. And then the way the Lord has, um, has blessed the church here, it's been so encouraging. And I actually, I look forward to, and I don't have any doubt, that God is able to do this, and he may well be willing to do it. But I look forward to being here on a Sunday morning when all those brown spaces are filled up with people too. There's, that The whole place is going to be, um, be stirred to the praises of our great Lord. I mean, it occurred to me a number of years ago that if we, um, our little churches, <clears throat> God doesn't despise small things in small places. That's the neat thing. And if our little churches are um, living out the truth, if that's what we're doing, loving it, living it, 
doing the best we can to repent of our sins and follow Christ in our stumbling, clumsy, fumbling ways, it makes sense that the holy God, who is going up and down the avenues reaching the women at the well, would send them here to be shepherded and discipled, built up in the most holy faith. It makes sense that he would do that. And so sometimes we ask the Lord to add to our, our, our churches, and we think, ah, he probably won't do that. But actually, it makes good sense that he would, because it is the Lord's will that his sheep be folded in little cell groups like this, churches, uh, that they may grow and prosper and flourish in their faith, in the faith. And so may it be here. I look forward to, to good reports in days and years to come. Okay, so I'm going to wind up using all my time in introductory remarks. Let me just quickly say thank you for your prayers for our work in Floyd uh, County, Virginia. Uh, my wife and I moved there eight years ago, almost eight years ago from the city of Roanoke, where I'd been for many years. Uh, Floyd is only about 40 or 45 minutes out of the city, but it's up on top of a mountain. It's a whole different culture. It's a whole different world. And it is one of those places, uh, kind of unique places in the Blue Ridge Mountains, where people have flocked there from all over the world, literally. Um, it's, it's still rural, but there are people from all over the world who've moved there to get away from uh, all of the, the muck of the, <laughs> of the institutional world that we're in. And uh, there's a, a desire on people's parts, even non-Christians, to get back to the real, raw existence of life and stop living this artificial thing we called life. And so since the beginning, when Hannah and I moved there, we began to pray that the Lord, we didn't think we would have anything like we have right now, but we just prayed, Lord, there's got to be a field here. The fields have got to be white unto harvest. All these people who want to get back to the real, back to the raw, and I just felt like that had primitive written all over it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so we just asked the Lord, Lord, it seems like that there are people who love this way of life, would it not be that you would reach them with your gospel through a church that has chosen also to leave off the accretions of the world, to leave off the layers that so many churches feel are necessary, and just do the real and just do the raw, just be who we are. And if we sing out of key, we're going to sing joyfully out of key. <laughs> and we're just going to be okay with that. And uh, the Lord has been pleased to raise up a work there. And uh, when, when we get all of the families together, if everybody shows up at the same time, it's about 50 people. And so it's an amazing uh, little work in a rural place that God is doing. And we are very, very thankful and very much want to ask you to pray for us in that. Okay, maybe that's enough introductory stuff. Let's, uh, let's get down to business now, could we? Over the past few days, we've been looking at John 4. We're going to not be there today. Um, I... I hope there's more that could be said, much more that could be said, and much more I would like to say, but also I felt like I needed to shift gears this morning, and I, I hope this is of the Lord. I want to go, instead of John 4, to 1 John 4. So we're going to move over to what we call the Little Johns. Uh, we, have, we have the Gospel of John, 21 chapters in the New Testament, in which John gives us an overview of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that is different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, summarize a lot of the things of Jesus' life. John seems to assume that people have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he adds in a lot of more details, things like the woman at the well story, as we've talked about 
uh, things like Lazarus, things like the woman caught in adultery, John 8, um, all kinds of details. Jesus saying, I thirst at the cross. Uh, detail after detail after detail. The other gospels either leave out or only barely allude to. John fills in details for us in these beautiful ways. And um, so it's as if late in his life, people came to John and said, would you write what you know of the life of Christ? I don't know how it happened, but that would be a reasonable way for me to think about how the story came down. And John, having been right in the mix from the start, and then, of all things, having Jesus' own mother come to live with him after Jesus' crucifixion, he could ask her anything. John takes all that knowledge and puts it together in a condensed book, John 21 chapters, and ends it by saying, if everything were written that could be written, the world itself would not contain the books. But then somebody must have come to John and said, hey, John 21 chapters is great, but could you condense it? (laughs) At least if this were in the 21st century, this is the way we would think. 21 chapters, that's too long a book. I can't read that much, right? We haven't learned to read uh, in that fashion, so condense it for us. Give us the Twitter version. (laughs) And... um, Whatever the case, the Holy Spirit, we know, was moving on John, and he moved John to write a gospel, which is the richest read you'll ever come across. And then he writes 1 John, five chapters. 1 John, five chapters, which give the same message as the gospel of John, just condensed, compressed. And every word in 1 John is is an intense word, if you will. Um, Oceans of meaning compressed into droplets of speech. That's, that's what we see in 1 John. And so it's been my privilege in the last uh, couple of years to be preaching through John at, uh, um, in, in the evenings and 1 John in the mornings. And it's been a very interesting study. I've never tried this before, but it's been a very interesting thing to just lay them side by side. And I, I won't bore you with those details right now. But it is fascinating to see how John's message is just consistently the same um, between these books. Rich, rich, rich. Well, in 1 John chapter 4, this may seem like Debbie Downer this morning because he addresses something that is of great concern and has been a burden to me, and I feel like I need to share it with you. We know in John 4, he he has called a woman from her deteriorate lifestyle she becomes a follower of Christ. She leaves her water pot, as Josh said a minute ago in his prayer. She leaves her water pot, the very reason for coming to the well, and goes to draw something else. Not water this time, but people. She goes into the city. She begins to draw the men of the city back to hear Jesus. Her water pot, the very reason for coming, is now left aside. She goes away to the city and draws all these people to Christ, like drawing water out of another kind of well. And Jesus Christ preaches to these people, and for two days, people are just brought to him in droves, believing on him from the city of Sychar. But the thing is that when Jesus Christ uh, wins a soul like he won the soul of the woman, and like he has won many of your souls, as he has brought you in his effective grace to himself, he brings you to himself for a purpose. This is what I feel like I missed for a long time early on in, in my Christian walk, But Jesus Christ doesn't bring us to just sit kind of on a shelf or to go ahead and live our lives as we would live them with a little divine intervention every now and then. He actually saves us and commissions us to a task. 
Christ has business with us. Do you understand what I mean? It's, it's not just Jesus saves and he'll pat you on the back and then one day say hello in the resurrection. I'm glad you made it to heaven after all. After all that trouble, I got you here. It, 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 no, all along the way, Christ says, I have business with you. I have, a, I have work for you to do. Now, you know well that we don't work to become saved. We work because we are saved. Uh, dead, dead people can't do this kind of work, you see. A dead spirit can't engage the spirit of the holy God. But when born of the Spirit, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And when our Spirit is alive unto God, then we connect. And he, he with us and us with Him. He abides with us, we with Him. And there is business to be had, work to be done, kingdom building to occur. Now, the way I like to say that may, may be unconventional, I don't know. The way I like to say that is Christ is saving people as he wishes, where he wishes, when he wishes, how he wishes, whatever way he wishes. Did I say that already? He is, he, please know, God does what he wants to do as he wants to do it. But he does it because his intention is to take over the world. That's the unconventional part. Because some of you are saying, what are you talking about, Brother Thomas? Don't you know Psalm 24:1? Yes, I do. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We know that's there, right? The, 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 the earth, of course it belongs to him. But remember that redemption, that word redemption, what Christ came to do, is about gaining back to oneself what has been taken away. Redemption is about buying back that which has been stolen away. Our world, friends, has fallen in sin. Don't think, even as beautiful as it is, that this world is our home. Or that God, um, you know, that every, everything about it is of glory to God. No, the world has fallen. It has this awful mark on it of sin and stain. And so God is in the process of reclaiming what, what is his for himself, and he is doing it through ordinary folks like you. Uh, He does it uh, in large part through things like this, little cell groups called churches. Now, you might say, but we're we're just too ordinary for that. Well, and maybe even you might say, I'm too sinful for that. And I understand. But, you know, the fact is, it's a shocking thought, the only people God has at his disposal to run his kingdom are sinful ones. You ever thought about that? It's the only ones he's got. Any sinners in the room today? (laughs) Um, The only kind of people God has to run his business here on earth are are fallen people who have been redeemed by by the blood of the Lamb. And so God has business with you. Now, that foundation, necessary for the text today, because now that God has business with you in taking back from Satan what Satan has taken away, Satan is stirred up. It's like a hornet's nest. Aiden and I discovered a uh, yellow jacket's nest in the yard the other day, and um, a skunk or a bear or something had tried to tear into the nest, but it hadn't finished it off. These bees were swarming everywhere, so we waited till night till they all calmed down. And my intention was to do the old West Virginia trick, which was to pour some gasoline in it and light a match and <laughs> let them have it. And um, we started in on that, 
and uh, got a little rag all wet with gasoline and started to drop it on the hole and 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 just barely missed the hole. I, it, it fell to the side. Would you believe the smell of the gasoline? Just the smell of the gasoline. That nest swarmed like crazy. It's like what? We can't even stand. We can't even stay here anymore. We had to. We had to leave. We didn't run, but we had to leave. Satan smells the gasoline. He knows that the igniting agent, the match of the Holy Spirit, is right there. And his days are numbered and he is doomed. And God is using ordinary people like us to light the match, or to carry the match at least. Don't take the analogy too far. And he's swarming. He is swarming against his people. So be sobered today, friends. This is not easy stuff. Here's the text, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Here's the litmus test. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. You've probably heard of that. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world, the spirit of Antichrist. But then in verse 4 he says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, the Antichrists, because, not because of your ingenuity, not because you are so strong, not because you flexed your political muscle, but because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth heareth not us, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me pray one more time. Father, I ask now that you would please, for the sake of your Son and for the upbuilding of your holy kingdom here in this world, get glory to yourself, Lord, in these few minutes. I suspect, Lord, that Satan is going to try to oppose this message because it is so much It is so much against what he is for. And I pray, Lord, that you, greater in us than he in the world, would come, O Lord, and give us what we need, that our hearts may be open to your truth and we may recognize we truly are engaged in a a hard and sad and difficult war, but that we are on the winning side. So, Lord, please, please give us the grace to unmask Satan so that we may recognize him, And give us grace, Lord, that we may stand strong against his incursions into holy ground. Through Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, a serious warning is before us. A serious warning. Many false prophets. The Greek is pseudo-prophetes. So you you can hear in that pseudo-false prophets um, have gone out into the world, even in John's day. Certainly, it is not limited to the day of John, though, of course, as we find out from looking but a small bit bit around us. 
the percentage of the population in our day and time that is being lied to, the percentage of the population is being taken in by the lies of Satan and his minions is very, very, very high. That is the message of Scripture. The chance of you, of your escaping, the chance of your escaping influence from the lies of Satan is almost zero. This is the frightening, startling, sobering truth. We are being manipulated. We are, 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 are being exposed to lie upon lie upon lie, for false prophets are everywhere. They spread the worst of ideas. They make them sound plausible, even right. I don't think ever in the history of the world have false ideas had so much marketing machinery behind them. You know what I mean? We are in a time when false ideas are they're mechanized, they're digitized, they're even idolized. False ideas are held very, very dear. Facebook and Instagram are only the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip. If you have a a smartphone in your pocket, you have a portal to the false spirits, thousands, millions of them, that St. John here talks about. It's that serious. Now, this is particularly, pardon me, I'm so sorry. This is particularly of interest to young people, I'm sure, but brothers and sisters who are my age and older, please know we, too, are complicit in this. This is for everybody. There is nobody who is exempt from the influence of the strange, dark, antichrist-haunted air we breathe. False prophets are everywhere. The text assumes even that Christians will be affected by this. You might say, well, they're out there. We're in here. Hallelujah. We're safe. Well, yes, in a way, the church is designed to be a protection, and I am so thankful for that. Um, I'm very thankful for that. But the text assumes that Christians are vulnerable to this. Did you notice that the text said, brethren? It uh, starts out that way, doesn't it? Beloved, he says, not brethren, beloved. This is the people of God. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. For many false prophets are gone out into the world. The idea John seems to have in mind is that, that Christian people, people whose devotion has been given over to Christ, are themselves vulnerable to or you know, even gullible to the lies of the enemy. Satan, of course, turns the heat up on the people of God. You might say, well, is Satan more at church or is he more at the, down at the bar room or at the, you know, the, the, the gaming room or whatever else? Where is Satan the most present? And some people argue that he's more present at church because he's already got the crowd out in the world. He's looking for you. He wants you. I don't, I don't know. What I do know is that he is swarming against positive movement of the kingdom of God that will eventually win over his kingdom of darkness. I don't know whether Satan thinks we're vulnerable because we believe a lot of strange things already. You may have run across these people who believe strange things. It's like whatever 
whatever the everybody, the textbooks say, they believe the opposite. You've met some people like this. Maybe you are those kind of people. I don't know. Whatever the textbook says, you believe the opposite. <laughs> um, people like that fascinate me. Um, but Satan knows that we believe some pretty strange things as Christians, right? He knows already that we have fallen into these, this... Um, this long line of tradition that has said up front and unapologetically that we're following a man who came back from the dead. That's a strange thing to believe. You ever seen anybody come back from the dead? I'm 58 years old. I have done a lot of funerals. Remember Brother Bradley and I were talking on the phone one time and he had just preached a funeral. I said, how did it go? He said, well, it was successful. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we managed to get through the service and, you know, have a burial and everything. It was successful. <laughs> um, I've never seen a funeral crashed by a resurrection. Have you? But here we are. We, little band of people today, a garden walled around, chosen and made peculiar ground, a little spot enclosed by grace out of the world's wide wilderness. We, this little spot, we, Join the thousands, yea, millions across the globe and from ages past who say the captain of our salvation rose from a grave. He died and now he lives and he'll never die again. Well, that's a very strange thing to believe, isn't it? Very strange. I don't know if Satan looks at that and says, see, those Christians are so gullible. They believe that somebody could come back from death. I'm going to try something else on them. See if they buy this also. I don't, know what, I don't know why it is. I mean, we could go on and on. Strange, there are tons of strange things we believe, of course. But whatever it is, Satan has us in his crosshairs. If you're baptized today, and I mean truly baptized as in you believed in Christ when you were baptized. If you're baptized today, you have the mark of God on you. And you can stand up every morning, you can get up every morning and say, I am baptized, I belong to Christ. I am baptized. I belong to Christ. You have the sign of belonging on you. Well, that sign is visible to Satan, apparently. It's like a blaze orange target on your back. As a matter of fact, Satan's minions love to target people who have said, I want to throw everything I have into the service of Christ. Satan loves to, to pick out people like that. Like in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the adulteress or the adulterer. It says the adulterer will hunt for the precious life. Man, that's what the devil is doing. He is try Kids, he is trying his best to get his hooks in you, to bring you down, to destroy the very foundation that has been laid for you and the excellent word of God. He is doing everything he can to bring you down. And it is, it is not a, um, he is not a fair fighter either. He doesn't fight fair. Okay? Satan sees, I think, the vulnerability of the people of God and he exploits this. Now, the passage, I, again, we just a crawling. You understand. This is the, I am so sorry that you're stuck with this. I am a crawler. <laughs> this is the way I do texts. I can't help but just slowly inch my way into them. So one other thing that must be said, and that is this. The passage shows the comprehensive nature of the life of the true Christ follower. The comprehensive nature. That is the whole person nature of this. We talked about this already this weekend. That to follow Christ is not to say, well, I'll give Christ, you know, one-third of my garden or one-tenth of my income. To follow Christ is to do, as we do in baptism, it is to completely submerge oneself in this thing of the kingdom of God. 
Now, we all wax and wane on this, I know. Sometimes you're cold, sometimes you're warm, sometimes you're flaming with interest in the things of God, and other times it seems distant and and even uncertain to you. Uh, I've been through many doubts in my time, for sure. But, um, But the point is that the Christian says, I'm done with self. I I don't want any more of me. He must increase, I must decrease. This is where the Christian lives, right? And you know that that's what you're supposed to say, even when you don't feel it. Say it anyway. Don't fear hypocrisy. Say it. Say it longingly. Say it hopefully. Say it wishfully. Say it prayerfully. Lord, may it be that you would increase and I would decrease, for therein I find my life. It isn't the loss of my life that I find it. Jesus made that clear. The text assumes a kind of a comprehensive faith in Jesus Christ above everything else and suffusing everything else among the Christ followers uh, that will come in the thousands of years that would follow this text. This view that the central event in human history has been the coming of Jesus Christ. The central event in the coming is the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Therefore, everything... I mean everything, is to be surrendered to his lordship. It's easy to say this, isn't it? Very easy to say. Uh, We sang it this morning, did we not? Yes, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Um, All to leave and follow thee. Oh, for goodness sake. That makes us squirm, doesn't it? Yeah, you ever been to a wedding whenever the pastor looks at the couple and says, you know, and forsaking all others, cling faithfully unto the other, only unto the other? Forsaking all others. Wait, could I have one or two maybe? I mean, all is a big number. Could I at least have one or two or three other interests? No. That's not, that's by definition not what marriage is. Forsaking all others, cling faithfully to this one that is God's appointed spouse for you. So it is here. Forsaking all the minions of Satan, the false spirits that are running around, the pseudo-prophetes, the false prophets who have engaged the spirits and given voice to them in the world in which we live, forsaking those things to follow Christ as a whole person commitment to him. So, of course, the text is going to tell us that the way to tell truth from error is to ask the question, Did Jesus Christ come in the flesh? And it's an odd question. It seems strange to us that that's the litmus test. Maybe time will let us look into why that is a little bit, but just take it from me right now that the text says that the way to tell is to ask, does this idea align with the gospel of Christ that has God coming to earth as a person, an enfleshed person, to die for the sins of his people and rise again for their justification? Does this idea align with that, or does it contradict that? This is John's litmus test. So he's giving us help, is what this is. This is not intended to be condemnatory, of course, to us. It's John is trying to help us. He knows we're in a war. He said, here's here's what I've got for you. This can help you. So looking at the text, once again, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, for many false prophets gone out into the world, all of this. So what you have is spirits circulating everywhere. I, I do hope you understand. I don't want to be creepy about this. But I do hope that, that you soberly look at this and understand that there is much more going on than meets the eye. 
in every situation, much more. And my guess is, based on plenty of inferences from the scripture, or, or, or uh, clues in the scripture and inferences we draw, my guess is that this room is much fuller today than it looks like. It's comfortably full as it is, but I suspect it's packed today. Again, I don't want to be creepy about this, but I want you to understand that we are living in a world that isn't like it seems. There is much more going on than simple material aspects. We are assured that at least, at the very least, the angels of the Lord are present when the saints of God worship. There are several instances in the Bible that point that out. The angels of the Lord are present. My hope is that the messengers of God are taking my words and translating them to your heart through, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sends, you see, these messengers to bring things to you so that I might say one thing and you hear another uh, because you actually heard what I meant to say. Um, there are plenty of times the preacher garbles the story, right? There's the little story about the, the little boy, you know, who came to church and is sitting by his mother and the pastor was late that day. That church happened to have a picture uh, you know, one of those paintings of Jesus back here behind the pulpit. And the preacher was late, and the little boy leaned over to his mother and said, where is that man that stands up there so that you can't see Jesus? <laughs> How many times have I been guilty? I stand up there. How many times do we as a church? We get involved in all of our administrative details, and um, thankfully we are free of most of that in the way, the way that we do church. It's such a blessing. You don't have many of the wars that uh, a lot of people have to think through, but but still, at the same time, we get involved in our administrative stuff. We think about all, all these little nuances, these fine-tunings of things that, that probably in the big scheme of things really don't matter. When we're on our deathbed, they don't matter. But we get all heated up about these things. And what happens? We stand up there and hide Jesus. I, don't, I pray that never there will come a time that Carnival Primitive Baptist Church is a place that hides the Lord Jesus. But is a place where He is shining gloriously, radiantly through the hearts and lives of the people who are His body. That's, that's what we pray for. Here we have, we have spirits circulating everywhere. So understand, there's much more going on in the room than you think right now. There's a hint in Hebrews 12 that when the people of God gather to worship, they are joined by the spirits of just men made perfect. Think of the dear people who have inhabited these pews over the years past. Some of them, I, even I have known. People who were here five years ago who are not today because the Lord has called them on to the other side. There's a hint in Hebrews 12 that the spirits of just men made perfect gather with the saints of the Lord when they worship. The church that we are reestablishing there in Floyd has this old cemetery beside it. The church building itself was built in 1871. The cemetery has people buried in it who were born in the 1700s right there. And undoubtedly, being buried in a churchyard, you think they must have, and the tombstones indicate, their faith in the Lord was strong. And I wonder sometimes, I walk in that building, especially when I'm by myself, I don't want to be, again, creepy about it, but I walk in there and I'm telling you, it's like, I, I, think, there, I think there's some sense of those who have gone before who love this place. I don't know. That's just me. Thus thinketh Thomas. Um, however, um, what you do need to know, and what we're sure assured of in the Scriptures, what we're assured of in the Scriptures, is that there's more going on than meets the eye. 
So, beloved, believe not every spirit. They're out there. These winds of doctrine, Ephesians 4 talks about. Wind and spirit, as you may know, uh, are the, are, come from the same word. And wind and spirit, these winds out there, that's what's going on right now. As my wind is putting, you know, is bearing some words that bring a message to you, my wind is communicating with you. Well, their wind is communicating with us, right? The false spirits, their winds are caught by people who then become the voice of the false spirits. They're out there everywhere promoting antichrist-like ideas, what we today euphemistically call content. All right, I'll let the school teacher in me go right now, but I, 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 get, I get kind of amused at the way we assign these words, your content. And that could mean the worst, uh, you know, darkest stuff out of the pits of hell, or it could mean a sermon, content. Isn't that interesting? That word could just mean all of that. Your content is out there. And the content of the false prophets is everywhere. Okay, I guess everybody gets that. What I wanted to do was to give you an outline at least so you can think this through yourself. So here it goes. The situation John names. And then the strategy he gives us. And then the support that is there for the people of God. So these S's, I think, guide us through the passage. And it might help you in your own meditations if you want to do this since we will run out of time. The situation, I think we understand now, and I always hate it whenever a speaker spends more time diagnosing the problem than he does pointing to a solution, so we'll hope that we can get over to some better stuff right now. You understand a little bit of the situation. We are up against it. Um, Maybe one more note, and that is that scholars think that John was dealing with something called Gnosticism at the time, or the early seeds of it. It wasn't really fully formed yet. Gnosticism is an idea that has actually made a comeback in our world today, so you say, well, that's That's first century. We don't need that. Actually, it's 21st century. It's very much present. Gnosticism. And part of it was this. Lots of parts to Gnosticism, but a part of it was this. The idea was that spirit, that inner immaterial self, is good, and flesh and material stuff is bad. Okay, so um, if you really want to get to the purest you, get in there to your attitudes and affections, interests, desires, passions, preoccupations. Get inside the self, and that's the real you. And your body and the stuff around you and so forth is not all that important. In fact, it's, it, it's something to just be manipulated as you need to make it serve your spirit. Are you following me? I hope that makes some sense. Because what you see is we are in a world eaten up with this stuff right now. Now, Okay, so, so it's been said that for many, many uh, centuries, the great challenge that human beings had was to attempt to figure out reality as it was made, as God made it, as we understand, and then align oneself with that reality. Figure out how the world works and then just educate yourself to fit into that. That's the way human, human beings worked for centuries, for the most part. And somewhere along the line in more recent times, in the last a few hundred years, and really a lot in the last 50 or 100 years, we came to the conclusion it was the other way around. We figure out reality, but mainly we figure out ourselves. What do I want reality to be? And then we set about doing everything we can to manipulate reality to fit us instead of us fit it. Now, this is very serious stuff. If you're tracking with me, this is very serious. 
Now, in some cool ways, this has happened. I love, and there are engineers in the room, I love what you do. You make our lives easier. Um, it's a lot easier to come down here in an automobile riding on smooth surfaces with air conditioning and music than it is to ride on horseback 640 miles. I'm glad for engineers. But actually, when you think about it, we've gotten used to this way of engineering everything. Have you notice this? Okay, this, this is relevant, so don't, don't check out right now in your mind. Um, I, if you think about it, I may be driving a chariot in the 1800s, and I want my chariot to go faster. I just want to go faster, and I drive my horse as fast as the horse can go, and it just isn't fast enough. So I decide to invent the automobile. Right? I manipulate reality to fit my desire, and we love that. Sitting in a hot parlor in the city of Memphis in 1875, got an 18-foot ceiling trying to take care of the heat. It's just not cutting it, burning up alive. I want to be cool in the summertime, so I invent the air conditioner. I manipulate reality, see, to fit my desire. We're used to this. I don't have time to sit down and fix a meal, so I invent the drive through <laughs> McDonald's or something. We've done this over and over and over again, and we've come to expect life to be this way. I want it to be light instead of dark in here, so I invent the electric light. Over and over and over again, we have come to believe that we can manipulate the world to fit our desires. And of course, one of the ways, and then this goes sour on us. It starts going to some very dark places, as you know. Because the false spirits happen to grab hold of this. See, they're as attuned to what's going on as they can be. They happen to grab hold of this and think, wow, this could be manipulated in such a way as to fit your desire, which is actually a deteriorate desire. Now, I don't want to be harsh or cruel, and this is a subject of great, of, of, of great complexity, of course, but nowhere do we see this manifest more than in our current culture where transgender thinking has begun to kind of overtake us. Now, many of you live in the generation, in, some of you live in the generation in which if somebody had come to you uh, 20 years ago or 50 years ago and said, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, it would have been unintelligible to you. It's like, what are you talking about? Okay, so now please understand, I'm not, I don't want to be uncompassionate toward people who struggle with these things. These are real struggles and must be handled very carefully and with a great deal of love. But the most loving thing is not to say, let's manipulate reality to fit your desire. The most loving thing is to say, let's change your desire to fit the reality as God made you. That's the most loving thing. And Christians, that's all we're trying to say. And I don't, again, we put a lot of attitude with that, I suspect, which is not good. But the fact is, which is more loving? Are we going to manipulate the reality to fit the desire and match the spirit of the age? Or are we, going to manip are we going to just adjust our desire, change our desire to fit the reality as God has made it? All right, do you understand? We, that's the situation. <laughs> we are in it. I mean, we are in the center of it, brothers and sisters. And John is addressing it. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Bible, thousands of years old, right on track with the times in which we live. He is right on it. The Holy Spirit knew right where we would be in 2023. He knew. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Just because your heart has been gripped by and your inner self seems to think this is the way to go, that may not be the way to go. Okay. What's the strategy? 
Well, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. Can we just start this meeting over again? Can we just like roll the clock back and make this Friday night? <laughs> this time is just gone, and I've got 11 hours in front of me. But uh, this is, uh, maybe this is the opening of a conversation. I, brothers and sisters, I do, that's maybe the, the message to take away is this is the opening of a conversation because sometimes we're sort of afraid to tackle these very hard things. And the idea here is that Christians actually have an answer if we won't remove ourselves from the conversation. We actually have something to say if we won't, by our attitude and bad spirit or clannishness or, or infighting, that's the big thing, you know, we fight about Lent. <laughs> if we won't, by fighting about little things in our own intramural wars, remove ourselves from the conversation, we actually have something to say to this. And, um, and that is fascinating to me. So my topic is not transgenderism necessarily, but the point is that all of these influences that are around us are hot and heavy, but the Bible doesn't, um, doesn't ignore them, and it presupposes that we will be okay because we have God's holy word and his holy presence. So the Lord gives us the strategy. Okay, a spirit comes along and says, I think that it's best to honor a person's wishes. I'm a, man's, a man trapped in a woman's body. I think it's best to honor his wishes. Uh, I think it's best to honor her wishes. Let's go do surgery. Let's do, do therapy, let's do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Lord says, well, wait a minute. Does this yield to one thing? The Lord says right here, does this idea yield to one thing? Does it acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? <laughs> You stop and say, what does that have to do with anything? It's the trouble with these religious people. They're always spouting their theology at us. It has nothing to do with what we're dealing with. Actually, it has a lot to do with what we're dealing with, and I can't go into all of it, but why this test? Notice the test for false ideas is not, does it align with predestination, or does it align with, I mean, not that that's unimportant, but it's not the test that I sometimes put up in my old days. I was a high school kid in what they call the cage stage. I was, I was so excited about the doctrines of grace that I should have probably just been put in a cage. I blathered along when I should have been silent and, you know, hung big millstones around people's necks and threw them into the sea, probably. But I, it, it, sad, sad stuff. But, but I can remember just all I wanted to do, if I could just possibly have an argument with somebody about predestination, man, I was so excited. I tore into them like a windmill in a tornado. And, and everything I could do to, like, beat them up. And when it was done, you walk away feeling kind of sick. Like, wait, did I stand in the way of seeing Jesus? I think my attitude may well have just blinded them to Jesus. Well, anyway, John does not put out some of the things that we might think are the shibboleths, you know, those things that are the litmus test. He doesn't hold up the old Baptist articles of faith right here and say, this is, this is what you used to test. It is interesting, isn't it, that the Holy Scriptures, of all the things God could have said, he says, does the, does the prophet acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? God became man. There's something necessary to understand here, and that is that for the, for, the, for the Spirit to be on the right page, it has to understand that God became a human being. It's that important. It's that big. 
Now, if you look back through the scriptures, I'm nearly certain this is true. I've done a lot of thinking about this, and I think I can say this is, this is, this is proving to be true. If you look back through the scriptures, you see that there's this interest that spirits have always had, demons, whatever they are, there's always, there's always an interest that they've had to be embodied. This is over my head, so I'm just going to put it out there real quick. This is over my head. I don't know, you may have thought this through a lot better than I have. Remember the time that Jesus Christ cast that legion of demons out of the man? And they begged him. Jesus, if you're going to have to cast us out, at least send us into something. How about this herd of pigs? Remember that? It's astounding. These demons did not want to be disembodied. They wanted to be in a body. Spirits have always wanted to be in a body. And frankly, when you and I die and leave our body behind, there's pretty good evidence in the Bible that when our spirits are waiting for the resurrection... That I wouldn't call it restlessness, but there is this anticipation of when our body and soul and spirit will all be back together again. That's when it's right. That's when it's exactly as it should be. Spirits are not supposed to be without bodies. And we're pretty fascinated by this, of course, in our day, aren't we? You have a spirit without a body, that's a ghost. And when I was a kid, everybody told ghost stories to spook you out. And nowadays, nobody talks about ghost stories, but you know, you have the opposite. You have bodies without spirits, zombies. Everybody wants to talk about zombies. It's a body without a spirit. It's like one of the other. We are fascinated by the separation of body and spirit. When you separate them, there's something spooky about that. Well, interestingly, that the demons and dark spirits that are inhabiting um, the universe seem to have a desire to be embodied. They want to be enfleshed. And as far as I can tell, none of them has ever succeeded in doing so. They can borrow a body for a time, as Satan did in the Garden of Eden. He borrows the body of a serpent for a little while. Those people, those, those demons that Jesus cast out, they borrowed the bodies of pigs for just a few minutes because the pigs ran down violently in a steep place and drowned themselves in the sea, and then they were, there the spirits were without bodies again. But, um, but Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, God who is spirit, is the one example in the history of Everything in which spirit became flesh. Jesus is it. Satan wants it so bad, he can taste it. He wants to take on flesh. There is some evidence in the Bible that he will in some fashion do that at the end of time. Um, the man of sin revealed, as we read about. Um, but Satan has longed across the course of human history to become a person. Jesus was incarnate. Satan is the imitator. He wants to be incarnate as well. Satan has longed to do this. He wants to be that. The demons want to have this. But Jesus got it. Jesus was born in a body prepared for him by God Almighty in the womb of a Jewish virgin Mary. Jesus is actually the only spirit that has ever come in an actual body owned by him and presently lived in by him. Yes, Jesus' body is alive and well in heaven itself. Well, that makes the hornet's nest swarm, my friends. Our enemy hates this stuff. He hates the fact that the Son of God is able to live in the flesh, who came in the flesh and has lived in the flesh, and when he died and his flesh was put in a grave, it didn't stay dead. It came back to life again three days later, resurrected, ascended to glory, and it's still there today. Jesus inhabits a body like yours. 
And so Satan is extremely angry because he can't possibly seem to do this himself. So he puts out these ideas, and the ideas all have to come back to, is Jesus Christ the only spirit that's ever come in the flesh, or are you pretending to be one too? Are you one yourself? Here's the way it works practically. I know that's, like I say, that's over my head. Here's the way it works practically. I mentioned earlier, this is the words of John the baptizer, John the Baptist. John the Baptist says of Christ, he must increase, I must decrease. That's how it works practically. A spirit, an idea that comes to your mind, an idea that's suggested through Facebook, an idea that comes through the media, whatever else, in the academy, it's all over the universities. An idea that comes, does it surrender to the fact that the one spirit in the history of mankind that has become flesh is Jesus? He must increase, I must decrease. Does it go there? or not. Well, this is how we tell. Now, friends, I would submit that this is where our real battle is. Um, It's easy for us to get off in the weeds, as I talked about. It's easy for us to get onto all kinds of other battles. This is where the real battle is. And the saints of the Lord gather up in harmony around the fact that we have got an enemy to fight, and we had better get on it. We had better all, it better be every man on deck kind of thing. That's where we need to be. So this is big stuff, and so it has to end. So there's the situation, and there's the strategy. Here, Jesus Christ, come in the flesh. And then there's the support, and so I want to end there. Old Lester Roloff was one of those, uh, some of you may remember, the old radio preacher Lester Roloff. You used to hear him late night on radio. He was a country kind of guy, and he he preached uh, hard and fast. And old Lester Roloff used to say, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He'd say, that's the godly 44. Now, he's talking about guns. I can't believe they let them buy with that on the radio back then. You could actually talk about guns on the radio. It's not about a gun. The godly 44. He says, what you can do is you can take the godly 44 and you can, you can shoot down any enemy that's out there with it. Well, he was right. 1 John 4, 4, the godly 44. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You and I may cower, we may fear, we may tremble whenever we step back and look at the horrors of the darkness that is gathering around us. The storm, my friends, is is brewing on the horizon and much of it has settled upon us as we speak and it's enough to cause us to just run in fear except for 1 John 4.4 and verses like it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Talk about support. Talk about support. You have it, dear brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ. So there was once a man, 1 Kings chapter 6, there was once a man who uh, was, a fa- was a famous prophet of the Lord. And uh, this famous prophet, Elisha, was up there in his little cabin one day, and he had a servant with him. And um, the servant walked out, I don't know, he was collecting firewood, who knows what he was doing. He steps out of the, out of the house and he looks outside and the entire horizon is covered with enemy soldiers ready to slay the man of God. Do you remember the story? It's one of the most inspiring stories in the Old Testament. See, Elisha was this fellow who, uh, he could hear what the king was strategizing in battle. King of Syria, he was, he was, he was hearing in his own ear what the king, many, many miles away, was saying 
in his chamber as he talked to his closest aides about the battle strategy. Elisha, the servant of the Lord, was given the special knowledge to know just what king of Syria was plotting. Now, that'd be a great power to have, wouldn't it? So Elisha would go down and he would just tell, you know, Israel, this is what they're getting ready to do, so be ready. And sure enough, they would. Syria, the king of Syria got sick of it. He says, we're going to go kill that prophet. We're, we're going to find him and we're going to kill him. Well, the day has come. Elisha isn't worried. He's in there, I don't know, making coffee. Who knows what he's doing? And the servant goes out and he sees, <clears throat> oh, they've come. Here they are, all around us. Thousands of them. Looks like millions. He goes running in and he says, alas, master, what shall we do? And Elisha doesn't even get up and look out the window, apparently. He just looks at the servant and he says, there's more with us than there are with them. There's more with us than there are with them. Now the servant says, wait a minute, I've been out there. You haven't. You have not seen this. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And God did that. And the servant goes back out again and he looks he looks and he says, yeah, all those soldiers are still there. Not one has moved. They're all still there. The enemy is there. But just above them, all around the ranks of the armies of our God, the chariots of the Lord there to protect the servant of God. There were more with Elisha than all the enemies that the Syrian army could produce. This is what 1 John 4, 4 is telling us. We spent a great portion of our time today talking about the dire situation that we're in. The enemy is all around us. I'm kind of afraid to drive home. <laughs> it's just everywhere. Except for the fact that God has given us a strategy. Does it yield to Christ? Then it's right. If it doesn't, it's not. And the support that God has promised to give us is He is greater in us than that enemy is in the world. For there are chariots of God gathered round, the angels, the hosts of the Lord, 10,000 times 10,000, there to protect the child of God in every way, lest we dash our foot against a stone. Our Lord holds us up in the great battle. Please understand, this is the great battle to which the woman at the well was called and to which each of you is being called, commissioned, to be a part of this great kingdom our Lord is building to take back the world. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? Oh, my goodness, that's a lot. May the Lord bless you for your patience. I Thank you for letting me come and be with you in this meeting. Let's, let's pray.